Thank you, Mark and Grace, for helping us this Lord's Day in worship. Let me invite you to find your way to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. The Gospel of John, chapter 14. I suppose I've mentioned this every time we've been in this section, but I, I continue to think what a, what a privilege it is and what an awesome thing it is to be in those, someone's presence as, as they're sharing, knowing they're at the end of their life and they're sharing what's really on their heart. That's what's happening in this upper room discourse. It's Thursday night. They're celebrating the Passover meal that represents Christ. But within hours, Jesus is a, will, be, will be arrested, tra- taken into mistreatment and injustice and, and unfair trials. On Friday, he'll be taken and stand trial before the Roman governor, and he'll be nailed to a cross, and he will die for our sin. Jesus knows all of that. His disciples don't. And so he's trying his best to prepare them for what's coming tomorrow, tonight even, and what will happen beyond. That's where he is going with this. And you see the the disciples wrestling. But again, I'd like to start back at chapter 14, verse 1. Uh, Our text today is verses 12 through 14. But let me read the broader context. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen me. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you've not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Now here's our text, verses 12 to 14. Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me The works that I do, he will do also, and greater than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. The Lord has been, again, preparing his disciples, and he's he's speaking of his, his soon departure from their presence. They're not quite getting it. He said, I'm I'm going away. Where are you going? He said, you know the way. And they said, how can we know the way when we don't know where? And he said, I am the way. But this this whole idea of his departure is is not connecting, not understanding. What do you mean you're going where we can't go right now and 
but will know the way. They're troubled and they're asking, you know, how do we know where, when? And here again, the Lord is returning to the idea of his departure and he's trying to give assurance. He may be gone, but the work of the Father will not end. So, so one thing is, he's going to be leaving them. Well, you're a teacher. Where are you going? They, they've, for the last three years, they've been constantly with him. And so part of that is, we're going to miss you. How, what do you mean you're leaving us? The other question that's, that's got to be somewhere close to their mind is, and if you're gone, now what do we do? If you're going to leave, is it all over? Is that it? We just, we just pack it up? It's done? What happens now? What happens now? And so, so our Lord anticipating and, and, and answering those questions in a sense is when he says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do. So what he's saying is, um, don't worry. The work will continue. He who believes in me will do my works. And then he says, and even greater. Well, that, that word greater, what does it mean greater? How can, how can you do greater than what Christ did? Think of the things he's done. Again, we've mentioned this. He goes into a village. Everyone who's sick is brought to him. Everyone who is brought to him goes away healthy. Uh, He's healed the lame. Uh, He's healed those who have leprosy, which is is considered, uh, you were considered to be the walking dead. When you had leprosy, um, that meant you had a skin and condition. Sometimes it was actually what we call Hansen's disease, and sometimes it was others, but you would have this disease You'd be expelled from the community. You couldn't get near anyone. You couldn't touch anyone. It was like you were dying on your feet for, for years. He would walk in and heal it instantly. The blind saw. They, the deaf spoke. The mute, I mean, the deaf heard. The, the mute spoke. I've mentioned, he, he fed the 5,000. He walked on water. He stilled the storm. What does he mean when he says the disciples will do his works and greater? Um, there's some question. Who's he talking about here? Is he talking about he said, uh, when he says, he who believes in me will do the works I've done and greater? What's he, who's, the, who's the believer here? Well, in one sense, we could say every child of God is truly a believer. But I think in the context, I mean, so often... And that, at first, that's how I was trying to take, I was sensing, that's, he's talking about believers. And we're to see this through the eye of the ministry of ongoing believers 2,000 years later. But in the immediate context, he's been talking to his disciples. Do you believe this, he's saying? Do you believe this? Do you believe in me? If you, he's asking them about their faith, and then he goes on to say, the one who believes in me will do these works. So I think he's talking to his apostles and talking about the ministry that they're going to have. He, when he says they're going to do his works, remember he said, if you have a trouble believing that I and the Father are one, that I am in the Father, the Father's in me. 
If, if those words aren't doing it for you, look at the works I've done. How else do you explain that? And so what he's saying is you're going to be able to continue to do those works. And that describes what the disciples will be able to do. Now, if you read the book of Acts, they will do some incredible miracles. They will heal the sick. They will give sight to the blind. They will, they will cause the lame to walk. And there's even the raising of the dead. You might remember the story of Dorcas, uh, who died, and they sent for Peter, and Peter came and raised her from the dead. I can't think of the feeding of 5,000. Type it, I don't see a mass feedings. I don't see them walking on the storm. Um, I guess we could, on a smaller level, remember Paul will be bitten by a venomous snake and it doesn't kill him. But there, you know, it's, there will be some of those miraculous, uh, amazing things that they will do. People will come in crowds for healing. It'll, it'll be so remarkable that in some places, remember uh, Paul and Barnabas, all these Greeks thought, well, look at these healings and miracles only a God can do that, so they came ready to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. And that got Paul and Barnabas nervous. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> um, because the true God will not be happy with you or us. Stop it. We're not gods. We represent God. But he says they're going to do what Jesus did and greater. And we wrestle with how can you do greater than what Jesus did? Um, well, I think that the answer to that is in the spiritual realm. What's greater? Think of our Lord's ministry. Three plus a little years. In a small country, back and forth across it. Uh, you know, I've mentioned, you know, when I lived there, you could get in a car, you could drive across the country twice, and, and it's still in the, you're halfway through the day. You can't get to Dallas from Terrell in that kind of time. But don't get me started on that. <laughs> um, it's a small country. He never went outside the country except for just some local areas right around it. And after pouring three years of God in the flesh, what, 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 if, what following did he have? He had the 12 disciples he'd called. One of those didn't take. We're told that in, in, in 1 Corinthians that at one point he spoke to five, five, at one point 500 people saw the resurrected Christ. So that may indicate there are as many as 500 believers that would, could gather in Galilee. When Jesus is telling his disciples, you wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. We're told in Acts um, that there were maybe 120 in the room. Acts 115. Those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120. So when the, the, the followers of Christ are gathered in Jerusalem, waiting for what he, what he told them to wait for, we find 120 after his three years of overwhelmingly amazing ministry. But he told his disciples, you're going to do greater. And I think that's the clue. 
in all of that ministry, at the end of it, we might look at it and say, you don't have much to show for, for what you have done nonstop for three years. You've been in virtually every village in Israel, been in most of the synagogues, you've been in the, in the temple, and this is what you have to show for it. Compare that to the apostles in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 241. Peter preaches his first sermon after the coming of the Holy Spirit. What's the result? Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. 3,000 souls. You know, I mentioned the 500 up in Galilee. So Peter's first sermon, he's got six times the best case scenario of what our Lord was able to accomplish in three years. Acts 4.4. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So in the early days of the ministry of the apostles, they're seeing responses in the thousands, where Jesus was seeing his responses in the ones I think that's that's what he's talking about there's there's greater a greater miracle than the fixing of a body and that's the fixing of the soul it's wonderful when you can have blind eyes see but when you can speak light into the darkness of the heart when you can make the deaf hear is is good Some of us need a little help in that area. But when you can make the the deaf ears, let him who has ears to hear, when you can open up the ears to hear the gospel and take it to heart. He raised Lazarus and, and, and a couple of others from the dead. When the gospel works in the heart, the de- those who are dead are made alive. On that first sermon in, in In Jerusalem, by Peter, 3,000 were raised from the dead. That's the greater works. That's the greater works. Is his disciples were going to, Jesus worked in this small area. His disciples and their followers would go out across the world. Some of the disciples, we don't know exactly, we, we have no record in the New Testament what happened after the Gospels. Some we do. We have, you know, we have Peter and, and others mentioned in Acts. We see the ministry of Paul. Paul was able to bring that ministry around the Mediterranean and into Europe. He, was the, he brought the gospel to Europe. It's said that the, uh, the disciple Mark is the one who brought the gospel into uh, Egypt. Uh, the disciple Thomas bringing it east into uh, Asia, India. That's what history tells us. But where Jesus bounced around in small little Israel, his disciples brought the message to the gospel. The entire Roman Empire knew the name of Christ. Paul, for example, when he was sitting in prison, I love that. He was in prison and he was chained to these Roman guards and, and he would, day in and day out, be talking the gospel. And one after another were coming to faith. And then they would share the gospel among the other Roman soldiers. And as the Roman soldiers spread out throughout the British Empire, or the Roman Empire, including all the way up into Britain, the gospel was going. 
And so when Caesar thought he was going to kill the gospel by imprisoning Paul, he was planting the seeds of the gospel and spreading it through the world. Greater works. So what Jesus was trying to tell his disciples here is, my departure doesn't mean the end. In fact, it means the beginning. Notice what he said. Greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. It's his departure that opens the door to the greater works. And that we can look at a couple of things. First of all, the departure includes the cross. The cross is what pays for the sin. I mean, this is what the gospel is. It's, it's the payment for our sin by Jesus Christ, the one who knew no sin, to bear our guilt, that we might bear his righteousness. The cross was a necessary part of it. But then his departure, his resurrection and ascension into heaven. In John 16, later on in this upper room, Jesus says this in verse 7 of John 16. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Now think about that. How it, can you imagine? You, you, you know who Jesus is. He's God in the flesh. <laughs> and he's saying, you're going to be better off when I'm gone. That's not very comforting. But he says, if I, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. And if I depart, I will send him to you. Who's the helper? That's the Holy Spirit. And so he's talking about the coming ministry of the Holy Spirit that will transform their lives and empower their ministry. And so Jesus is saying, my departure marks good news because then the Holy Spirit comes. And that's what he told them after he left. He was with them for some 40 days and he said, uh, now you wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. And he will enable you, he will empower you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other parts of the world. But Jesus had to leave before that could start. And so he said, when I leave, you're going to do greater works. And so that's what he's talking about. How are you going to, why is it he's giving them comfort? My departure is a necessary uh, setup to the coming of the Holy Spirit and the expansion. Your ministry will accomplish things I did not. And then he went, goes on to talk about prayer. And I think right in doing so, he's telling us, and a vital part of your enabling to do these things is, is what I would like to explain to you. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do to do that that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. The Holy Spirit's coming will be vital to them. His indwelling ministry will empower them, give them the ability to be his witnesses, give them the ability to do those miracles, but give them the ability to preach the gospel with effectiveness. And it's the Holy Spirit who will be opening the eyes and bringing to life the hearts. And so he, but, but vital to that, too, is the ministry of prayer. And I think he's, by the way, telling us a clue about our own lives. And it's important that we know Christ as Savior and have eternal life and a new nature. We're born again. It's important that we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But vital 
to living the Christian life and producing the fruits of the Christian life and fruits of, of Christian ministry is a life of prayer. And so he, he moves instantly as he talks about doing the greater works to prayer. Whatever you ask in my name, he says, that I will do. That's an incredible promise. Whatever you ask, that I will do. How are we to understand that? Well, I think it, what it says is, whatever you ask, that I will do. But, but a couple things to just notice in passing before we talk about that in, in full. Whatever you ask, that I will do. What is asking he talking about? Prayer. And one of the questions we might say is, to whom do we pray and who answers prayer? God. Okay, you put on your Sunday school hat. Okay, instant answer. God, if that doesn't work, try Jesus. Okay? So, here's the key. Who is it that answers prayer? God does. What does Jesus say? Whatever you ask, I will do. What's he telling them again? I am the God who answers prayer. So again, the question comes up, has, has Jesus ever claimed to be God? Here's one more, one more place where he does. Now, now sometimes, you know, I was going to say, I, I, I could tell you, you know, I answer prayer, and again, you'd be in a panic. Now, sometimes that might happen. Maybe the parent hears the child praying, you know, Daddy... Um, or, or, or God, I, I pray that you'll you know, give me a puppy. And dad goes out and buys a puppy. So you could say the dad answered the prayer. But that's not what Jesus is talking about, is he? He's saying he is the God who answers prayer. And what would you do with that word whatever? Whatever you pray, I will do it. Is it really completely unlimited? Notice the Lord puts some conditions on it. So we have to read the, the, the promise carefully. In verse 12, the Lord made it clear that belief is essential. Who's going to do these greater works? He who believes in me. Now, he was challenging them. Okay, do, do, you, if you, do you believe? Do you really believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Do you really believe that I am God in the flesh? He who believes in me, he's talking about, is the one who will do the greater works. Most I said, whoever believes in me. So prayer, an essential element of, of, of prayer that works is knowing, believing in Christ as Savior. Um, right there, let me just make a passing comment. Sometimes we make the statement, I believe in the power of prayer. And I've mentioned that. That's not really the best way we could say that. It's not the prayer that has the power. It's the God who answers prayer. Imagine you're going out and you're looking for a new car. And you want one that can really zoom down the road. And you say, I want one with a good key because I believe in the power of the key. Now, probably that's the kind of thing I would look at. You know, as much as I understand these things, you know, because they can open up the hood. And they say, that's the engine. Oh, is it? <laughs> And so until you 
looking to, I'd be looking in the Volkswagen and say, it looks like a tire to me. <laughs> but, um, but it's, you know, yeah, the key, you, you got to have the key to start it, right? But it's not the power of the key that we're talking about. It's the power of the engine. And so when you say, I believe in the power of prayer, what we really mean by that, I believe in a powerful God who answers prayer. Now, now, now no, it's, what, what that means is, in terms of the car, don't lose the key, especially nowadays. Nowadays, keys are a lot more expensive than they used to be. Two bucks, you get a copy, you can make 12 copies at Walmart, and you, you're covered. Nowadays, you don't do that. <laughs> Those keys are computers. But, and so the key, the, 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 it's central to understand that prayer is, is vital to bringing God's power into our situation. I believe in the importance, the urgency of prayer. The power in the sense that it, it, it opens the door to God's power, yes. But really, I believe in the powerful God who answers prayer. So effectual prayer is not based on believing in prayer. It's in believing the God who answers prayer. God's power, not the power of prayer. Hebrews 11.6 comes to mind. The great, from the great belief and faith chapter, right? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that is rewarder of those who diligently seek him. There it is. What do I have to believe? You have to believe in him and that he answers prayer. He, he, he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Hebrews eleven six. The faith is an essential element in our relationship, and the faith is an and a necessary element in our prayer life. That shouldn't surprise us, but here's a crucial point: prayer is a privilege of the one who knows Christ as Savior, who believes and trusts in Christ as Savior. Prayer is not for those who do not know Christ as Savior. It's a, it's, it's a privilege of the child of God. You might you know, think of lots of examples about you go to the state fair, you, know, you, you, you spend your last paycheck buying those little tickets so you can buy three corn dogs with your week's pay. <laughs> And so the kids are coming in, you know, your children, you know, they, want, they, they, they want some for the rides or whatever, and you're handing out you know, you're, to your children, okay, here's, you get four, you get four, you get four. And so, can you imagine some strange kid says, hey, this looks great, that guy's handing out tickets. And so some little child comes up and says, can I have some tickets? No, who are you? Go talk to your father. <laughs> these, are, they, these are from my children. Prayer is the privilege of the child of God. Our father who art in heaven. And who is it whose father is in heaven? That's the one who's come to him through faith in Jesus Christ. Prayer is a privilege of the one who has trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior. It's he who believes in me that can ask him to answer prayer. And as I think about that and let me mention a number of verses that point to that fact. Okay, I'm going to give you kind of a a quick reading through of a number of verses that underscore that. Psalm 66, 18. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. 
Well, first of all, if I, you know, to, that's to regard, to treasure it, my, that's, that's an evidence of being an unbeliever. But it's also an evidence in our own life. If I'm in sinful rebellion against the Lord, um, I've, got a, I've got a wall between me in my prayer life. Isaiah 59.2. Your iniquities have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so he will not hear you. He's talking about unbelieving Israel. Isaiah was confronting the nation. Isaiah 59.2. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. Proverbs 15.29. Proverbs 15.29. The Lord Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. And in the biblical terms, the righteous is the one who's been declared righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. Proverbs 28.9. One who turns away his ear from hearing the law even his prayer is an abomination. Proverbs 28, 9. The prayer of the unbeliever can be seen as an un- abomination in that it's coming to the God who it refuses to listen to, turning, a, you know, turning his ear away. Isaiah 1, 15. When you spread out your hands, he's telling the you know, unbelieving Israel, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. You're guilty of sin. And so he's saying to them in Isaiah 1.15, I will not hear. But Jesus says, for the one who believes, whatever he asks. I, I, I hope you do some Bible reading and read through and have a, a plan to be consistent in the scriptures. Well, recently I'm, I'm reading in the book of Ezekiel. And I was struck by this verse in Ezekiel 14.3. Even in the Old Testament, there was reference to the fact that idolatry is not simply worshiping an image. You can have idols of the heart. You can have in your heart idols. uh, I know it's false images of God to worship. Ezekiel 14.3 says, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts. And it be put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. Here's a good test. What's an idol of the heart? Having an affection and a trust in something that leads you into sin. Should I let myself be inquired of at all by them? So God is kind of putting it to Ezekiel. Should I listen to the prayers of these who worship idols in their heart? Prayer. So when Jesus says, whatever you ask, I will do it. Okay, uh, here's where you're reading the fine print. Who's he talking about? Believers asking. Those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior. One one of our passages said, those who turn their eye to their ear, they will not listen to the law. The believer is someone who has listened to God's word. He's heard the gospel. He recognizes, you know what, that condemns me. It shows me I'm a sinner. But I recognize, too, in God's word that Jesus Christ, that's why he came, to die in my place, to pay the, pay the penalty of my guilt. And he offers me forgiveness when I trust in him as Savior. I'm trusting in Christ as my Savior. Recognizing my sin, I turn to him for forgiveness, life. That's what it means to be a believer. And that's the one who can cry out to God, 
Father, hear my prayer. And Jesus says, that's, that's vital. It's, it's, it's essential to believe. Martin Luther said this, All who call in God, on God in true faith, earnestly from the heart, will certainly be heard and will receive what they asked and desired. Although not in the hour or in the measure or the very thing which they ask, yet they will obtain something greater and more glorious than they had dared to ask. I've learned if you, if you can put asking for something in at prayer, uh, if you can bring it down into this world, sometimes I'll have a mechanical issue. And I have learned not to say, this is what you need to do for my car. No, it's, uh, my prayer is, um, you know, here, uh, you, you need to replace my transmission. And the answer is, um, here, I just cleaned the spark plug for you. You're good to go. <laughs> in other words, uh, I really don't know what I need, do I? You know, sometimes it's my, my you know, I think I know what I need. I, I think I know what's best. And God in his mercy translates that and gives me what I need. It may not be what I specifically asked for, but it's, it's even better because it's actually what I need. Another problem we have sometimes is I feel like I need this now. And God in his wisdom says, I'll give you what you need when it's best. You have some things to learn first. It's like the person you know who prays, God, I want patience and I want it now. Well, how do we learn patience? By waiting. Sometimes we're praying, whatever it might be, it might be a job, it might be for a spouse, it might be for a child, it might be for health, it might be for... God knows what we need and when we need it. And, and the wise child of God confesses that from the beginning. Now, I don't want my will. I want your will. Because yours is, you're always right. And I am so often wrong, I don't even know what I need. And so Luther reminds us, yes, God answers. And he gives us exactly what we need, exactly when we need it. And we should be grateful he doesn't give us exactly what we ask for. I've mentioned the lady that, that uh, had five different guys that she prayed would be her husband. And five times God said no. And her testimony later in life as she looked back and says, have you ever thanked God for saying no to prayer? <laughs> uh, sometimes if we look back at the things we asked for and think, oh God, thank you so much in your mercy, you wouldn't answer that that way. So prayer... First condition, then, of this greater things, whatever you ask, it must be in faith. It must be from a child of God who knows Christ as Savior. Secondly, prayer, he says, must be asked in Jesus' name. And so, so often when we pray, we say we pray this in Jesus' name. But we, but we have to be careful. Sometimes that becomes almost a magical formula, right? Wait a minute. I said the words. Doesn't it make it work? Now, the words are good because they remind us of something. But what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? Um, first of all, when we say those words, what is it that makes it work? To ask in the name of Jesus is to ask in his worthiness, not our own. Sometimes we come to Jesus, we come to the Father, kind of like we deserve something. 
R.A. Tozer, R.A. Torrey, a Bible preacher of a previous generation, tells the story. He had been in Melbourne, Australia for a series of meetings. One day as he went up to the platform, a note was, was handed to him. You know, and, and so he read it and said, Dear Dr. Torrey, I'm in great perplexity. I've been praying for a long time for something that I'm confident is according to God's will, but I do not get it. I've been a member of a Presbyterian church for 30 years. I've tried to be a consistent one all the time. I've been superintendent in the Sunday school for 25 years and an elder in the church for 20 years. And yet God does not answer me, my prayer, and I cannot understand it. Can you explain it to me? I don't know if the fellow expected this, but Dr. Torrey got up from the platform and read the note. That's one of the things you could look around and see who's sinking right now. <laughs> or maybe he's leaning forward. Yeah, finally, good, I'm going to get an answer. Because he, and the Torah the, goes on to say, because he had rightly detected something in the letter's tone, he answered like this. It is perfectly easy to explain the matter, why he's not getting the prayer answered. This man thinks that because he has been a consistent church member for 30 years, a faithful Sunday school superintendent for 25 years, and an elder in the church for 20 years, that God is under obligation to answer his prayer. He is really playing, praying in his own name. And God will not hear our prayers when we approach him in that way. We must, if we would have God answer our prayers, give up any thought that we have any claims upon God. There is not one of us who deserves anything from God. You ever heard, ask someone, how are you doing today? And they'll say, better than I deserve. There is not one of us who deserves anything from God. If we got what we deserved, every one of us would spend eternity in hell. But Jesus Christ has great claims on God. And we should go to God in our prayers, not on the ground of any goodness in ourselves, but on the ground of Jesus Christ's claims. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. In other words, I'm coming in his authority, in his relationship to you, not in my own. At the close of the meeting, a gentleman came up to Tory and said, I'm the man who wrote that note. You've hit the nail square on the head. I did think that because I had been a consistent church member for 30 years, a Sunday school superintendent for 25 years, and an elder in the church for 20 years, that God was under uh, obligation to answer my prayers. I see my mistake. So when we come in Jesus' name, what we're making clear, we're saying here is, I don't deserve this. I haven't earned it. I couldn't. I'm a sinner saved by grace. It's like, you know, it's been said that the gospel is one beggar telling another beggar where he found food. A beggar coming at your door and saying, I'd like some food. They don't, can't say, I've earned it. I deserve it. It's God's mercy. It's, it's grace. So praying in Jesus' name is saying, I, I don't deserve anything. But I come in the name of Jesus, and he deserves everything. It also must mean something he would ask for. To pray in Jesus' name means we're praying for something that he would ask for. So imagine a young, baby, a young child saying to the babysitter, Mom said, if I wanted anything, I need just to ask you. Sure, what would you like? I want the keys to the car so I can take it out for a spin. Um, that's not asking in mommy's name. <laughs> Mommy would never want you to take this little four-year-old to give you, wouldn't give you the keys and say, go take a spin. You see, so when we come, we come in the name. He was using the name of mommy. That's good. 
But he's asking for something mommy would never want him to have. See, part of answering and asking in Jesus' name is by his authority, by his deserts, by what he deserves, and asking for something he would want us to have. So, one, it's in Jesus. It must be the prayer of a believer. Two, it must be in Jesus' name. Uh, by his righteousness and for, for his purposes. And finally, it must be for the glory of God. Notice he went on to say, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. The purpose of prayer is not ultimately for our comfort or our desires. James 4, 3 James 4.3 says, You ask and do not receive, because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. That's what, not what that's for. It's kind of like you can have a, a corporate credit card. But that doesn't mean that you can go spend it wildly on the stuff that's just for you. It's supposed to be buying stuff for the corporation. We're careful about that at the church. Whenever I forget to turn in a receipt, I get notices. Fearsome. Threatening. And I turn them in. Recently, I spent a little over $3 buying more mints for the coffee table. I turned in that receipt. Signed it. So, in other words, um, you can't use the corporate credit card just for your goodies. It's for the purposes of the corporation. Prayer in Jesus' name is for God's glory. And that might remind us, we've been, we're going through the catechism every Sunday morning, but remember the first question is the best one. Do you, know it? Do you remember it? What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why we exist, for God's glory. Prayer in Christ's name seeks to glorify Christ. Just as Christ would say, not my, thy, not my will but thine, when we pray, we're saying, not my will but thy glory. When I think about this, I'm reminded, I think I've shared this before, when the great uh, Bible expositor, uh, James Montgomery Boyce, was found to have cancer that was uh, terminal. There was nothing more that can be done. He came in, in, in his last time of being before his church, uh, he wanted to make some remarks. I'd like to share what he said. And listen to what he says about prayer at the end. A number of you have asked what you can do, and it strikes me what you can do, you are doing. This is a good congregation, and you do the right things. You are praying, certainly, and I've been assured of that by many people, and I know of many meetings that have been going on. A relevant question, I guess, when you pray is, pray for what? Should you pray for a miracle? Well, you're free to do that, of course. My general impression is that God, who is able to do miracles, and he certainly can, is also keep you from getting the problem in the first place. So although miracles do happen, they're rare by definition. A miracle is to be an unusual thing. I think it's more profitable to pray for wisdom for the doctors. Doctors have a great deal of experience, of course, and in their experience, but they're not omniscient. They do make mistakes. 
And then also for the effectiveness of the treatment. Sometimes it does very well and sometimes not so well. And that's certainly a legitimate thing to pray for. Above all, I would say, pray for the glory of God. If you think of God glorifying himself in history and you say, where in all of history has God most glorified himself? He did it at the cross of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't by delivering Jesus from the cross, although he could have. Jesus said, don't you think I could call down from my father ten legions of angels for my defense? But he didn't do that. And it's, yet that's where God is most glorified. Do you see what he's telling them? With his situation of terminal cancer, he's saying, you can pray for a miracle. You can pray for, for wisdom and skill for doctors. But his greatest hunger was that God be glorified and he recognized in Jesus' case that was a terminal answer. But he wanted to be able to glorify God in the process. And so, as, we, as Jesus is talking about his disciples, I'm about to leave your presence. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Is that the end of things? No, no, no. This is where it takes off. This is where the good starts, stuff starts happening. So often we say, where's the good stuff? The miracles. Now he's saying, the good stuff is the expansion of the gospel. Hearts made alive across the world. That's the, that's the greater things. And, and how are we going to accomplish that? He's going to send the Holy Spirit and he gives us the privilege of prayer. That's a, that's, a, that's a child of God's privilege, the one who's believed in Christ as Savior. And then we pray in Jesus' name, by his authority, by his deserving, and for his purposes. And what's the key element in all of that? We pray for God to be glorified. And so often, what we're doing in, in saying that is we're saying, Lord... I think I know what would glorify you here. But may your glory be seen. Imagine the person getting ready to run a race. God, oh, you'd get great glory if I win this race. But on the other hand, maybe if I lost the race in a way that really stood out for God's glory, that would be even bigger. And so we pray, God, you know how best to glorify yourself. And that's... That's what I'm asking for. John Newton, who wrote our song Amazing Grace, said this about prayer. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are, are such. None can ever ask too much. We thank God for the privilege of prayer for God's people. Do you know Christ as Savior? Are these promises for you? If you have yet to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, do you hear what he's offering you? He's calling you to turn from your sin to him for forgiveness and life. For those of us who know him as Savior, are we using the gift of prayer as we ought? Have we been as faithful in prayer as we should be? May God give us grace to grow in this way of honoring him. Father, thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ.
who taught and did so much. For Lord, he lived for your glory. And how I pray we, your children through him, might show your glory. And Father, help, help us to know the joy of that. And help us, Father, to gladly surrender for your glory. And this we pray in Jesus' name.